We are in the Hartman Curriculum uh, Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism. We're in the unit called Peoplehood. We've talked a lot about membership in the Jewish people. We've talked about understanding peoplehood a bit. We've talked about different kinds of ways of identifying Jews of being, Jews of becoming. We uh, then talked a little bit about what is it when we have disagreement when we have contention uh, within a people, then, you know, how is that handled? We talked about deviance. Uh, we talked about tolerable deviance and intolerable deviance. And then um, we talked about tolerance, right? So the difference in all of those categories and where, you know, so there's true pluralism, then there's tolerance, then there's deviance. And within deviance, there's tolerable deviance and intolerable deviance. So, um, so we did, we've done all of that. And so now we're at, um, uh, what Rebecca Starr, uh, suggested we do next, which was class number four, which is what members of a people owe each other. Um, and so before we dive into the material, I think it's easy to just walk in and you're confronted with a topic and then it's like, oh, I got to get my head around that. I'm not even sure what that means. And then, you know, that takes us 15 minutes and we're already behind. So, uh, so I want to start the other way. Um, which is, um, because I too was like, mm, you know, I'm having a trouble relating a little bit and where's the passion here? Where's the, you know, interest? And, and then I had a week chock full of bar mitzvah students, bar and bat mitzvah students, like back to back to back to back to back to back to back. Uh, and one of the questions I make them answer for me that goes into their eventual speech at their ceremony. One of the questions I have them answer for me is what is Jewish being, what does being Jewish mean to you? So it kind of reframed my approach to right this set of questions when I really sat with young people hearing from them what a Jewish identity is to them and what that means to them. A lot of it is that they feel part of a bigger family, right? They feel part of something bigger attached to people, even people they don't know. Um, that has implications, right? And that's kind of what we're going to explore. So rather than go, well, this isn't really relevant to me. I was like, well, kind of it is, <laughs> right? I just have to put myself back in that framing. So A, think about our young people who are being raised as Jews. And what do we want them to feel in terms of what members of a people owe each other? Where is it not so much relevant for us that that they put Judaism, you know, anywhere really on that scale? Where is it important to us? So that's part of what some of this is. Where is it important for us as Jews? Um, where is it not? Where is it meaningful? Where is it not? Um, and the other thing is that last night, yesterday was Yom HaShoah, and we had a program here, Violins of Hope. And um, it was an incredible, you know, uh, an incredible piece written by a now KI member, um, Lisa Rosenbaum uh, and Rhonda Spinak, two KI members. So and put on by the braid. So it was it happened. They put it all together right before covid. Um, so there were no live performances and then they had to reconfigure the entire thing for Zoom. So now it's a film, um, but not of a live stage performance. It's a film that was created for Zoom, right? So, you know, there's kind of vignettes of characters speaking alone, you know, and violins at the bottom, each in their own box, you know, and playing, you know, so it, it turned out it works really well for, for a film, you know, um, to have it that way. But, um, my point is, um, as always, I was deeply moved by stories of the Shoah. Many of you know I have a day school background, um, a day school back before they knew how to teach about the Shoah. We were still dealing with, as a people, with the trauma of it, and they hadn't yet figured out how to teach children about it. Um, and so they they had huge posters of piles of bodies, piles of shoes, piles of glasses, the crematoria, mass graves. This is what I grew up seeing every Yom HaShoah. Um, so that traumatized a generation of us Jews in a way that um, I can't really explain, except to say I can't go near anything having to do with the Shoah. So I even had to make sure this movie did not have anything in it that was going to be a trigger for me. Um, so anyway, so having sat through that film, like I was like, and I was not triggered, thank God. Like, I, you know, it was actually a beautiful film and a beautiful story, but I was but you can't help when you're hearing stories about the Shoah, you can't help but marinate in what that trauma was for us and remains 
for us who are actively involved in those memories um, and in the kind of suffering that got passed down to us um, and the anger and the covered up stuff and the darkness that got got passed on to us. Um, you can't not you can't not have a sense of identifying with those people because they're your people. You just can't. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I swear there's no judgment around it. What I'm saying is I was very aware because I knew I was teaching this tonight. I was sitting there going, uh-huh. So how much of this is because they're your people? I won't watch the last of the Mohicans either. I won't watch 12 years a slave. I won't watch any of that stuff. I just cannot do it. Um, if it's science fiction, blow up anything you want. Like, I don't care. But when I know it's historical and it's reflecting real people's lives, I can't do it. So I'm not saying it's easy for me to do about, you know, uh, you know, Native Americans, but not for the Jews. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is there is a there is a very certain way I hold the stories of the Holocaust differently because it was my people. And it really made me have to start to think about, okay, so where, where are those lines of discernment and, and, and where are they significant and where do they mean something? Where, where are they important and where does it not matter? It's human beings and, and so, right? There's just shouldn't happen to any human being. And of course, that's what I believe. It shouldn't happen to any human being. However, there are ways that when you belong, when you do have a sense of belonging to a people, there is a sense of what do we owe each other? And part of what these texts are addressing, um, is, do we owe each other compassion? Like for Jews, I don't even know, but it's happening to a Jew somewhere else. Um, and then what does that mean for us? You know, when I see things happening to women somewhere else, when I see things happening to girls, you know, little children, boys, that we, we were them too. We were children. You know, what about when I see it happening to LGBTQIA people who in parts of the Middle East are thrown off buildings tied to a chair? Like, you know, like where, where is it meaningful for us? Where is it not that we, um, that we owe something to one another in terms of um, the different groups, the different identities that we carry. Okay. So um, in terms of what members of a people owe each other. Um, so however one identifies as, as being a member of the Jewish people, we talked about Jews of becoming Jews of being what, what, whatever it is. Um, if we're part of a people, what, what is, what is it that is demanded of us? What does loyalty to one's people require? And we're going to look at some texts because that's that's the Hartman approach, right, is to look at texts um, from the tradition that starts to explore um, how we've been asking this question for a long time, because we have. We've been asking this question for a very long time. Um, so the first text that we're going to look at um, really emphasizes that Jewish peoplehood is about mutual responsibility. Um, and that text comes from Leviticus Rabbah, one of the biggest, uh, piece, uh, collections of Midrash that we have on Torah. That's, of course, on the book of, obviously, Leviticus. Um, and so the, the Midrash is gonna, is gonna give us two parables. Uh, and we, we're gonna look at those parables and, and know that they're being talked about in terms of, uh, identity within the Jewish people and what that demands uh, from us. So let's look at text number one. Tane Chizkia. So already we're getting that this is, that it's not, it's uh, not the five books that are going to be quoted here, but Hezekiah. So King Hezekiah is being quoted here by the Midrash. It is said, Israel is a scattered sheep. And this is found in the book of Jeremiah. Why are Israel likened to a sheep? So they're taking a verse from from uh, the historical right stuff from Jeremiah. And, of course, the Midrash is always looking for an opening. They're always looking for something to drush. So rather than just take it, Israel is like a scattered sheep. Okay, move on right to the next verse. No, 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 no. There's a, this is an invitation. Why a sheep? It could have been anything. Why a sheep? Right. This is an invitation to a Midrash. Why are Israel likened to a sheep of all things? Just as with a lamb. When it is hurt on the head or any other limb, all its limbs feel it. Even so is it with Israel. If only one of them sins, all of them feel it. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught, this may be compared to the case of people on a ship. One of them took a borer and began boring beneath their own place. 
the fellow travelers said to that person, what are you doing? And that person said, what does it matter to you? I'm not boring. Am I not boring under my own seats? Said they, because the water will come up and flood the ship for us all. So, right, a fairly straightforward midrash, but that's how long, right, we've been talking about what does it mean as a collective when somebody does something. And and the reason they're bringing up sin is because for the rabbis, that was damaging to the Jewish people. If a Jew sins, that's a check minus in the big black accounting book. That's going to delay the Messiah coming. That's going to delay the day of judgment. That's going to delay all of this Mishigas being gone, right? And Eden being established and the resurrection, right? It's a big problem if a Jew sins because now it's, it's really impacting all Jews. So we might not use the language of sin. So what language would you use for this metaphor to make it current? If one Jew does what? Lori? In our day and age, it would be more like Shonda for the Goyim. So when one Jew does something that's sinful, it reflects badly on all of us. Right. So, uh-huh. Dana. And that means it's another check on, off of making us, you know, a scapegoat for something. That's, that's always, it seems like in every generation, that's always part of the checklist. We don't want to be put in that position. Right. So when a Jew does something, let's, let's use the language, not sin, but let's use the, the language unethical, immoral, criminal, even. Right. Then I, that person's only doing that under their own seat. But what we all sense very clearly is it's a Shanda. Right. It's a shame, meaning a busha, a real shame. Like uh, what's uh, what's the other word? Not shame, but um, whatever. All right. So it is really, truly about shame. Um, in front of the Goyim, right? In front of the non-Jews, Ashanda in front of the Goyim. For sure, I grew up hearing that one. Um, and it's, let's not, what you're doing is you're giving them more ammunition. You're drilling a hole in our boat when you act like that because you are giving people ammunition to use in their anti-Semitic agenda. I don't know about other people when I see something horrible like a mass murder or whatever and the name of the person is not a Jewish name. I feel relieved. Right. Although I'm, I'm horrified about what happened. So then when but, you hear the name Harvey Weinstein, what do you feel? Uh, not good. Not good. And so, and, and this, and, and others, this is truly an innocuous question. How many of you feel the same way when it's a Jewish name on TV, you feel differently than when it's a non-Jewish name? Interesting. Majority, a large majority of us, um, have that response. Uh, there was uh, this fellow who, a uh, young kid that uh, stabbed about four girls in Utah, and his name was Kronberg, and um, he wasn't Jewish, thank God. But I think the Jewish community was up in arms. That this could have possibly have been a Jewish kid. This is the one that went to the college campus and stabbed four girls in their dormitory. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have a response that's different when a member of our people does something, right? And it's not just private. That's what that, the point of this is. It's not private. We all feel that the boat is a little closer to sinking, right? When somebody drills a hole in their own area of the boat, Matt. Is the boat the Jewish community or is the boat the community at large? Because we're kind of uh, mixing some different ideas here in this conversation because, you know, we're one small community. <laughs> There are other small communities that identify themselves in different ways also that sure. have these same kind of feelings. But we kind of look at the, the, the wider Gentile community. It's like, what are they? I mean, what do they think about? Are they, are they worried about us? Because we're worried sometimes about what they think of us. Clarify the. So when, so to use the, the metaphor that's in the story. Uh huh. Is everybody in this boat Jewish? Yes. Okay. I think that's yeah. their point. That the guy is saying, I'm only drilling under my seat, but the other Jews in the boat, and right. the people in the Jewish boat are saying, that makes right. absolutely no sense. We're all going to sink because you're wrecking the boat. I think what Matt's saying is sometimes when you worry that the perpetrator of the horrible crime or whatever it was has this Jewish last name. Are you worried about what other Jews are going to think about this or what the world at large is going to think about this? Right. So there's the Jewish reaction, which is you just drilled a hole in our boat. And we're concerned that that's what has happened 
because of anti-Semitism. Does that help clarify? But many times I don't feel good about feeling that because I feel it's kind of parochial. Why am I worried more about Jewish people than about whoever was the victim of the crime? So this is where the rub is. This is where the rub is. Well, wait, wait. It doesn't mean we care more necessarily about the identity of the perpetrator as being a Jew versus what it means for the victim. I think the the more fair comparison is a non-Jewish perpetrator and a Jewish perpetrator. Um, all right. Although, although, right, that's where, that's where we might draw a real line and to say, wait a minute, I hear you talking so much about the Jewish identity of the perpetrator. I don't hear you talking a lot about the victims, right? That may be a place where we say this is a problem, you know, that your obsession with the, the Jewish identity of the criminal is, you know, is over, completely overshadowing what, what it means for the victim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just going to bring up the flip side, which is if if we feel ashamed if a Jewish person does something bad or unethical, we all fail when they do something good. You know, they, you know, hit a home run or win a Nobel Prize or whatever. Correct. So. Correct. They are absolutely flip sides of the exact same coin. All right. So don't freak out at source two. Just don't freak out. Okay. It's, I know, it's, it's crazy, but the rabbis get crazy sometimes. They just do. They go to these really crazy places. And it truly is a, think about a lot of men sitting around for a lot of hours every single day dealing with the laws of whatever and whatever and the minutia of whatever. And they go to some pretty crazy places, but it's truly like theoretical and quite out there. All right. So, um, so let's look at source uh, number two brought to us from uh, Joseph Telushkin, um, in the introduction, uh, to, uh, Erica Brown and Misha Galperin, the case for Jewish peoplehood. Can we be one? Okay. So in this, so, oh, wait, the other thing I wanted to say was, um, about this before we go on to source number two about source number one. The other thing that we were talking about is, um, to, to Matt's point about what the Jews think about us, non-Jews think about it, you know, what are we more worried about and what do the non-Jews, do they even care? But we were just having this conversation um, in, in KI about whether or not to participate and how in the July 4th parade, we always participate somehow, but like, it's a whole big, you know, it's such a disaster, the whole thing. So, and to get up and run in all these kids and you, if you do a car, you don't want to run over the kids. Like, it's just this whole thing. So the how did we want to participate? And, sh- and so the the discussion somehow took a very sharp left turn into, okay, I know it shouldn't influence our decision, but that means the only Jewish representation in the parade is whom? Chabad. And the, the person who was speaking like went off, like just said, just give me a second and just like let loose a bunch of right vitriol about how embarrassing it is that that is the representation of the Jewish people is what Chabad will now have in the float and all the attention they get and all the things they do when they drive around with that menorah and the bullhorn and it's, it's humiliating and blah, blah, blah. And someone else said, yeah, but all the people at the parade are clapping and like, yeah, and she's like, that's my point. That's what they think of the Jews. So it goes back to like, being embarrassed as a Jew that this is the expression of Judaism that people will see. Well, we don't usually mean other Jews. We know other Jews kind of know that that's not AI, obviously, or the synagogue they would belong to. But who, who would, who are we embarrassed in front of? The non-Jews who are at the parade, that this is what people will see of the Jewish community. And that's all they'll see if we don't go. If we don't show up, that's all they'll see. And that, that was a factor for this person in the decision about whether or not we should really push hard to get our act together and whatever it means, suck it up and show up. Um, so it just, again, I knew I was teaching this class and I'm like, there it is. There it I assume, is. I assume the purpose there was to show the many types of Judaism and not necessarily to attack other Jews. Huh? That I, 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 I no, I mean, I, I, it, I, I just want to be, what I'm hearing from you is that the concern was people would not see that there are Jews of many different kinds and they would just think that it was one type. That it, they would think it was that type. No, no, I understand. Very specifically. Right. 
had it been just another liberal synagogue, I don't think they would have cared. It's that it's the hokey pokey whateverness of what they would see represented was embarrassing, right, for this person about what it means to say that's the Jewish community of the Palisades. Um, okay. So now looking at uh source number two. Um so this is about like uh mutual empathy, right? Um when Jews are hurt, um other Jews caring about the individual and their pain. All right, so let's look at this one. One of the more unusual texts in Jewish religious literature concerns a case of an infant born with two heads. A Talmudic commentary to Benachot 37a raises the question of whether such a child is entitled to one or two shares of the father's inheritance. So obviously they were studying the laws of inheritance in the land of Israel and notes that a similar case had risen before Solomon, long renowned as Israel's wisest king, who had ruled thus. Let them pour boiling water on the head of one child and see if the other one screams. If he does, then it means that the children are not regarded as twins, but as one. However, if the second child does not feel the suffering of the first, then they are to be regarded as separate individuals. Telushkin says one hopes that this case was hypothetical. Certainly for the sake of the child, destined to have boiling water poured on its head. Nonetheless, the late Rabbi Joseph Baer Soloveitchik of Blessed Memory argued that the implications of this case are not hypothetical at all. In his essay, Koldo di Dofek, my beloved's voice calls to me, he, to me, he writes, if boiling water is poured on the head of a Moroccan Jew, the prim and proper Jew in Paris and London must scream. And by feeling the pain, he is loyal to the nation. So this idea, right, that feeling empathy uh, and support for Jews you don't know who are suffering in some way is about loyalty to the Jewish people. So if if that's one of the yardsticks we're using, right, then then what does that mean uh, for us in terms of the relationship between North American and world Jewry, North American and Israeli jury, um, like wh- how, how does that, what does that mean for my identity as an American Jew, if this is true? Mark? I, I would uh, remind everybody about the Russian Jews in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole movement. Which I thought was Russian jewelry for the longest time. Well, a wise word, I get it. <laughs> uh, but I think the point being, um, I was just uh, at a lecture the other night. Uh, there's a Saban Theater, the, a film writer, um, just did a movie called Resistance. It's, it's the story of Marcel Marceau, who was a famous mime, and he was he was a Jew. And his his role in the war was to take Jewish children whose parents were slaughtered and sneak them into to Switzerland. And this this uh, I forget his name, the the film writer. Uh, he's he's a, a grandchild of uh, Holocaust survivors, and he was raised in Venezuela, and he came to the United States maybe a year or two ago to do this movie. He said, American Jews do not realize how difficult it is to be Jewish in the rest of the world. He said there is so much hatred for Jews in all of South America, especially Venezuela, and even government sanctions against them and in uh, Argentina he says American Jews have to have an awakening of how difficult it is for Jewish people and I have I'm a doctor and my friends who are doctors in in France they'll go to a clinic and a Muslim person can say I don't want you to take care of me because you're a Jew so I think we need to have a little bit more empathy for Jewish plight in the rest of the world well so but what you just did was negate the possibility of empathy if you don't know about it Right. So, so that's, we have to have an awareness of how difficult okay, it so, is. So let's, so let's go with something happens to a Jew somewhere else in the world. If empathy is one of the ways I express loyalty to the Jewish people, what are the implications of that about my Jewish identity as an American Jew? Going back to your bar and bat mitzvah students and you ask them that question, what does it mean to be Jewish to you? You know, they're living in an American, you know, civilization. It's not like they're living in Israel where everyone's Jewish. It's not so easy 
to be Jewish. And, and especially if you don't go to Jewish day school or something. So how do you reach that point of being compassionate and aware of other Jews when your own identity is marginal? Yeah. So, so this is the danger of a thin Jewish identity, right? That, that for us is one of the dangers is that it lessens the empathy that Jews will have for other Jews. And therefore, I would, I would add a willingness to figure out a way to act, right? On behalf of, in the ways that I can, right? On behalf of those. Why are you looking at me like you're? <laughs> it might not have been even this class, you know, it might have been last year, you know, like what makes one feel included, not the becoming and, um, you know, we, we kind of want to be part of the civilization. We want to assimilate. And if we are assimilating and successful, then why would we go back to worrying about other Jews when we've done it right? And right. So, so there's, there's two sides of that coin too. There is the blessing of belonging comes with the pain of empathy, right? The blessing of assimilation is that to Bob's point, I don't have to care. I don't even have to know if I'm assimilated. I don't, I don't have to know about Jews. Who cares about the Jews in whatever country you're talking about? I don't care. Jews don't want to get treated. Muslims don't want to be treated by you. Fine. I don't live in that country. That's why I don't live there. Right. So that's, that's the trade-off one might say, right. Um, for assimilation versus a strong Jewish identity. Um, the, what I hope is that the empathy one feels for a Jew in another country, I, I can only talk to my closest situation, which is my kid, is that I hope that's a gateway, right? That if she feels empathy for a Jew somewhere else that suffers because they're a Jew, it opens the door to her understanding through that empathy, the suffering of other groups as well. For, for me, it always worked that way is that because you're a Jew, you should get it more than anyone what it means to watch the news and not care about what's happening to other people. Because you know, if you watch the news and it's happening to Jews somewhere else, you know, you feel a deep empathy. Do you know what I'm saying? For me, it was always understood that that should be a gateway that sets your bar pretty low for, you know, feeling pain for, for other groups. And so it was the, the gateway empathy drug thing experience. But, but what, what does it say about us that we have less empathy for other groups? You know, we hear about the genocide against the Rohingya in, in, in um, um, Myanmar. You know, we hear about the genocide in Rwanda. And we hear about it and fundamentally on emotional level don't care. We say, oh, that's terrible. That shouldn't happen. We don't do anything. And then that's the exact same um, mindset that let people excuse the Holocaust when the world knew that Jews were being killed on a mass scale. And not what does it say about us? We don't care as much about others. I'm going to flip the question and say, that's not my experience. I, I hear what you're saying. That is not my experience. My experience is because I was told it happened to your people, Amy, us, you have to care about Rwanda. So we made sure to vote for the right candidates. Jewish World Watch, we made sure to fund efforts against genocide. We brought in a, a Rwandan survivor to speak in the Jewish community because no one gets it like we do. Do we care as much as we should? Of course not. But but it works the other way for me, that there's lots of folks who don't care. There's lots of people who don't want to care about anything that's going on in the world that, that's going to upset them. And that, well, there's nothing I can do. It's learned helplessness. It's all this other stuff. My identification with the Jewish people and the Holocaust actually had moved me to a place of saying, I don't get to not feel anything. You know what this feels like. Do we do enough? Of course not. But, but you know what I'm saying? But, but it, it, it worked absolutely the other way. I don't think most Jews ignore genocide when it happens to everybody else except the Jews. I really do feel like Jews are sensitized to the issue of genocide and are ready to talk about it and address it and take it on and support policies that will hold world, you know, people accountable for atrocities. I just feel like Jews are way more in support 
of all of that it would take to make that happen than some other folks. Is that not your experience? I'm just thinking on an emotional level that even though I think, you know, the genocides that continue to occur to this day are, are horrible. Uh, I mean, I, I remember it was, it was many, many years ago and I forget whether it was Iraq or Iran, but like nine Jews were hung as spies, including but a Jewish teenager. And, you know, I, I felt enraged about that and I don't feel enraged about the genocide. Everybody. Of Rwanda. No, that's yes. Reality. So, so I think that's, that's a where the work is, you know, that for us to, to work on that. You know, to have more empathy and more compassion and more <laughs> outrage on behalf of like everybody. I also think part of what this curriculum is, is getting at is the honesty of what it means to, to really feel that one belongs to a people. Then one does feel differently when it happens to your, if it happens to your family, it's going to feel different than if it happens to a family in another city. It just does because, because we're human and that means we, when we belong, it's one of the most gorgeous things about who we are. And one of the most challenging things is the arrogance of, of that, right? Of saying, I should care more. And we're going to get to Hannah Arendt who like is like goes on a tear about this, you know, but, um, it should disturb us. It should disturb us. It should upset us. And the way we're hardwired is to, is to care about our, group of belonging in a different way. And that's the reality we're dealing with when we deal with saying we really do feel part of a people. Uh, two points. I don't know how many times I'm sure you do. It says in the Torah <laughs> that we, we should be concerned about the stranger. 36. 36 times because we were strangers as well. And so it says that a lot more actually than love your neighbor as yourself more times. Way more times. Right. But the, the other Because they understand your neighbor's a Jew. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Love the stranger. Right. You know, your neighbor's a Jew. That's hard. Like so you know. the the other piece is as Americans, we live in a society whose ideology kind of says, get rid of your ethnicity. Get rid of yes. your peoplehood. Yes. And that that, you know, assimilate. Yes. Uh at best be a hyphenated American. Uh, as, as Kaplan talks about, you know, Jew, hyphenated, uh, Americans, but we are trained from the beginning, you know, United Colors of ben- Benetton and to be tribal, you know, all different, all different people. Everybody's living together. I uh, had no idea. What are United Colors? I don't understand. I don't know. They're still, well, there were a lot of different colors. The ad had a lot of, it was for clothes okay. of many colors and the ad had people of many colors. Okay. But, but but in in America you're supposed to come here and leave your quote tribalism. We're supposed behind. to be a melting pot, right? Exactly, and to say tribal, which sounds very extreme, and in America almost wrong. And so I think for hyphenated Americans, for Jewish Americans, maybe this is a little bit tougher than it is in other countries where you're forced to associate with your ethnic or national group because the society is a lot less open. I think historically that has absolutely been the case. We we were Jewish and hung out with Jews when we had to, when we lived in American ghettos, you know, in the Lower East Side or wherever we were and where we were relegated and still you got beaten up on your way to school or at school. I think that's very true for historically for immigration to the United States and the pressures put on Jews. My father never learned Yiddish because his parents did not want him speaking Yiddish. He should only speak English. Uh, right. Um, you know, so he can understand it because he learned, he wanted to hear what they were saying when they were fighting and you know, or talking, you know, when he wasn't supposed to understand. So he learned to understand a lot, but he could never speak. And that's what they wanted, right? It was an American child. So I think that's absolutely true. I think what's changing is I don't think America is the melting pot it once was. I think what's happening with identity politics and a bunch of other stuff right now is that people are appreciating that America, America can be, well, some people think America can and should be a very busy toss salad that we're all together in the bowl. We're all, you know, going to be served at the meal. Okay. <laughs> right. But you get the idea that like rather than just melt in and become one mush, 
the idea is we're one dish with many different interesting flavors. I think that's the way we're moving now, which I'm hoping will actually be a way for Jewish kids to reclaim some of their Jewish identity in this land of identity, this era of identity politics. My concern is we're in the trap of white supremacists don't consider us white. We're Jews. We're not white. And the folks on, let's call it the left, um, say you're part of the white power structure. You have no right to claim vulnerability in this country. You're rich. You run the media. You're connected. You're the bankers. You're the, you own every, like you, you are part of the white power structure that's oppressing everyone else. This is the catch, um, for Jews in this country, um, right now. Um, and it's a real one. It's why so many of us feel so disoriented on the left all of a sudden. Like, you know, I grew up a staunch liberal Democrat and it's, you know, that was our home. That's, that's where, you know, my, family thrived. And then it, all of a sudden it's like, now I have to pick sometimes, be, you know, you can't march in the, in the lesbian march with a Jewish star on your gay flag. Right. You know, so am I more lesbian or more Jewish? Like what, do I, have to, I have to pick now. So, um, but, but I'm hoping it means that we're moving towards a place where Jew, Jews can reclaim that, that identity without being to be accused. a Jewish American or an American hey, Jew. Hang on. Um, where where they cannot be accused of tribalism, but instead can be understood as claiming right their own hyphenated identity, like so many people are now, and are not giving it up to say I'm just American, you know I'm a you know Asian you know like I'm I'm like whoever it is like so I, anyway so I think that's my hope anyway, and um, that question makes no sense am I American Jew or Jewish American that makes no sense. Um, right. It's like, am I more female or more blue eyed? Right. So I've always said that question makes absolutely no sense. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's a ridiculous question. So, you know, Mordecai Kaplan, that's was his whole mission was to say there, there is no way you can, you can't answer that question. They are both true. I'm a Jewish American and an American Jew. They are, they are equally true. I think it's, it, you and I agree that it's a ridiculous question, but. Those who are not, you know, on the inside of that question are still posing it, which, you know, exactly like you're having trouble with, can I wear a Star of David along with my pride flag? You know, which one am I? Um, the question is not being posed from the inside, but from the outside, and it's very subtly divisive. Well, it's not a question when it's posed from the outside. Yeah. <laughs> it's a statement about who they think you are. Mm-hmm. Dana? long time ago, like 1975, when I went to Brandeis Camp, an adult camp, BCI, and Dennis Prager was one of the scholars in residence, and he told us to divide up in four groups. Do you feel like you're Jewish, American, or human? And I forget the fourth one. So it's so interesting that that was that perspective then, because he wanted us all to say we were Jewish, you know. Right, but that's an, right, so, but it isn't, because that's already an agenda is I want you to not identify like Kaplan would have us identify as you can't separate Jewish and American for us. Right. He didn't, he doesn't like that answer. He does not like reconstructionism. Right. He's pretty radical in that he's very clear that your Jewish identity should be primary now. And always there is no American exceptionalism. Okay. All right. So are we ready for source three? By the way, I meant, I meant to tee it up. Sorry, Rebecca. I was going to do it to you, but, um, I found a video of Hannah Arendt answering almost exactly this answer to an interviewer in 1957. Um, so I will send it to all of you who are registered for the class just for your entertainment. I was going to show it, uh, tonight as instead of reading text number three, um, it is ex- almost exactly this answer that she gives to the interviewer as she's smoking a cigarette and answering the question with smoking the entire time <laughs> she's talking to. Uh, all right. So she's answering, uh, Ger- Gershom Sholem, a Jewish scholar. Uh, and this is in 1963. She's answering him. I found it puzzling that you should write, I regard you wholly as a daughter of our people and in no other way. The truth is, she says now, I have never pretended to be anything else or to be in any way other than I am. 
And I've never even felt tempted in that direction. It would have been like saying that I was a man and not a woman. Of course, you can tell this is dated because now you might say that. Um, Saying that I was a man and not a woman, that is to say, kind of insane. I know, of course, that there is a Jewish problem, even on this level, but it has never been my problem, not even in my childhood. To be a Jew belongs for me to the indisputable facts of my life. And I have never had the wish to change or disclaim facts of this kind. There is such a thing as a basic gratitude for everything that everything for everything that is as it is for what has been given and not made for what is fise and not nomo to come to the point. Let me begin going on from what I've just stated with what you call love of the Jewish people or Ahavat Israel. Incidentally, I'd be very grateful if you could tell me, since this concept has played a role in Judaism, when it was first used in Hebrew language and literature, etc. Right? There, there goes a scholar. You can't stop being a scholar, not even for five seconds. You are quite right. I am not moved by any love of this sort, and for two reasons. I have never in my life loved any people or collective, neither the Ger- she was born in Germany, neither the German people, nor the French, nor the American, nor the working class, or anything of that sort. I indeed love only my friends, and the only kind of love I know of and believe in is the love of persons. Secondly, this love of the Jews would appear to me, since I am myself Jewish, as something rather suspect. I cannot love myself or anything which I know is part and parcel of my own person. To clarify this, let me tell you of a conversation I had in Israel with a prominent political personality who was defending the, in my opinion, disastrous, and she's right, non-separation of religion and state in Israel. What he said, I am not sure of the exact words anymore, ran something like this. You will understand that as a socialist, I, of course, do not believe in God. I believe in the Jewish people. I found this a shocking statement, and being too shocked, I did not reply at the time. But I could have answered, the greatness of this people was once that it believed in God and believed in him in such a way that its trust and love toward him was greater than its fear. And now this people believes only in itself? What good can come out of that? Well, in this sense, I do not love the Jews, nor do I believe in them. I merely belong to them as a matter of course, beyond dispute or argument. We could discuss the same issue in political terms, and we should then be driven to a consideration of patriotism. There can be no patriotism without permanent opposition, and criticism is no doubt common ground between us. But I can admit to you something beyond that, namely, that wrong done by my own people naturally grieves me more than wrong done by other people's. This grief, however, in my opinion, is not for display even if it should be the innermost motive for certain actions or attitudes. Generally speaking, the role of the heart in politics seems to me altogether questionable. So quite a, quite a mouthful. In the interview, which was helpful for me, she's speaking in German, so there's subtitles, but she clarifies that belonging to a group, which she here identifies as belonging to the Jewish people, because then she talks about, you know, patriotism you know, and belonging to political parties. So if you're a patriot, and you belong to a country, like, shouldn't you be patriotic? Like, so it's like, shouldn't you love your country? So it's, it's got a little confusing. But what she says in the interview is politics, belonging to the Jewish people is nothing she had anything to do with. And it's only about her identity vis-a-vis her people. Political and other kinds of organizations are about your, as a person, relationship to the world, right? And to to things of the world. And that is a different kind of belonging than the belonging that is just de facto. For her, those are different things. So belonging to a political party is a decision about how one interacts with the world, whether one is a Jewish Democrat or a Jewish Republican. They're just Jewish because they're Jewish, because they, she would say, maybe a Jew of being, right? You, know, you just, you got born Jewish. That's who you are. She doesn't have a problem with that. She doesn't deny it. She doesn't say, I'm not defined by that. She's saying, that, that's who I'm born into. Those are my people. People belong to groups of people. Being a Jewish Democrat 
is very different or being a Democrat, Republican, whatever your you know group is that you happen to belong to otherwise is different because it's how you interact with the world. It's how you as a human being, whatever group you belong to, belong, whatever group you belong to, how you understand what's right to do vis-a-vis the rest of the universe. Does that make sense? Like policy, you know, it's like it's about a position. It's about policy. It's about what should be done. And two Jews can completely disagree about that and do. Right. There are Jewish Republicans. (laughs) So, um, Dana, what? Your Jewishness, color, your politics or your. Very interesting. I'd be very curious to hear her answer. I would be curious to hear her answer. Does she think her Judaism colors her decisions, you know, about what group she would join and what she wouldn't? My bet would be she would argue no. As an intellectual, I bet she would argue no. That's just my guts. Um, but what's interesting is she firmly rejects the idea of loving anyone because they're a member of your people, right? Without having met them, having no idea who they are, she rejects loving someone who she doesn't know. But isn't that different from loving the Jewish people as opposed to an individual? He says no. No. How can you love people? What does that even mean? I love the Jewish people. What Jewish people? Who? Goldberg? Schneiderman? Who? Like... If you go back to the first thing we read, it was, it's a matter of loyalty. So it's not a matter of love. It's a matter of loyalty that you are part of this people and therefore you have an obligation to the people. Am I setting you up? However, loyalty, what was it defined by? By not causing harm to your people. The, and the other reading, what was it? It was defined by empathy. It was defined by feeling something different when it happens to a Jew. And that's her, that's her point. Like she's saying, Mm-mm, no, I, I, I can't feel something out of love for a person. I don't know because they're a member of my meaning. I'm not going to feel deeper empathy for somebody. I don't know just because they're a member of my group, Matt. Well, except, then be, she goes on to say that if, you know, if, if someone who else is Jewish does something that she doesn't like, it grieves her more. But <laughs> right. That's, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me because she's basically simply said that being a Jew is no different from being a German or being French, or whatever. It just, it just is. She doesn't put, it's like it's an empty vessel of ethnicity instead of having some philosophy or value or or anything. It doesn't mean anything. And yet she admits that it still bothers her. And yet, so, right. if the name is Weinstein, yeah. it, but, it feels what, right. what she's, what, what I find interesting also is that then she goes on to say, I feel that, but that's not something I would put on display. Wouldn't like, put on I display. would be very private about that. Right. Meaning so she's, she's, she's embarrassed. It sounds to me on some level by it well, that she feels that. So at least here, she's not exploring this honestly. She's what? Not exploring this feeling honestly. She's not feeling constant. Honestly. Oh, honestly. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. this is, she's unless, unless, and we, we don't know. We'd have to ask her. Um, but unless there is a difference for her between feeling embarrassed. By something another Jew does more than if it's a non-Jew versus love. Right. That's the other thing that's not really part of all this is we're all talking about what if somebody does something terrible or that you don't like or that's embarrassing, but we're not talking about what happens when someone contributes something that enriches society or your group or society at large. How does, how does that make you feel? Proud. Yeah. Why? (laughs) Why? Well, I, I mean, I think I've articulated that's the, that's that, but, um, I, I think the other thing to know is that Gershom Shalom takes very seriously the notion of Ahavat, of Ahavat Yisrael. It is a very serious concept when Shalom is writing. That was a very real thing. And I think that's the other thing is we don't really hear that. We don't really get that. But it was a very, very 
prominent concept when Sholem is writing um, is this idea of Ahavat Yisrael, like love of the Jew. Um, two things. One is, is I'm not sure. Maybe you can say more about the how love is the same as empathy, because I think you can. How what? How love is the same as empathy, because I think you have empathy without loving. Um, probably hard the other way. Um, and then the other thing that she seems to be really reacting against here is sort of self-reflective love. So she says she doesn't love herself and she doesn't want to love, you know, a people that she's part of. And then she criticizes this uh, guy she's talking to in Israel for exchanging love of God, which is outside for love of, you know, the people. So she seems to think that self-love is, is dangerous or bad in some I think she's saying she doesn't love herself more that she's a Jew. And well, and that she, that the, I, that what she's saying is in the God piece is that at least once upon a time, that was something that, 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 ref, that defined the Jewish people for the good. I don't think she means at all. Right. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. Right. I think also remember she, you said she was born in Germany. Yes. And, and, and so her attitudes could very well be conditioned by the history of her life and be very different from a person, from a Jew born in New York, Los Angeles, or Atlanta. Yes. I, I, mean, I, I, I just don't know what clarifies our, no, I can't, I can't. Except the German intellectual tradition that she would have been no, exposed but, to but, and but, immersed in. Having been born not only into that tradition, but into the historical context of what it meant to be a Jew. In Germany, and also again, I'm not sure how, what that what that says. So obviously, yeah, all of us are shaped got, by. It's got to be different from being. Well, born sure, in sure. I'm just not sure to what extent. So, um, so I'm not sure what she means by, you know, I can't love myself or anything, which I know is part and parcel of my own person. But I don't, I don't think it means bichlal at all. Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure what she means. Then she goes on to say to clarify this and doesn't really clarify it right very very well um but that uh but that she what she's criticizing is when he says when that as a socialist the person she's talking to um i don't believe in god i believe in the jewish people meaning the jewish people is a loftier thing to believe in than the ridiculous idea of a god that's out there which is silly and everybody knows that or at least socialists would say that right you know so um, well, I'm saying that with a broad stroke, obviously. But so, you know, uh, as a socialist, the, the Jewish people is a higher ideal for me to believe in. And what she's saying is to her, that's ridiculous. You know, it's like that, that there's nothing insulting about the Jewish people having been a people defined by, by their love of the divine at once upon a time. You know, that that was actually one of the things that lifted us up out of, you know, the kind of things that were happening around us with polytheism and paganism. I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm saying that that's what lots of people have said. It was this belief in a different kind of understanding of God that, that demanded justice. And that was not whimsical and random and throwing lightning bolts just because he was jealous of this girl that this one God was sleeping with. Right. So, um, so she's saying, I think she's saying so that once upon a time that distinguished us. Not so much anymore, I think she would say, right? You know, but, but that that was a good thing, but that, but that instead we're trading what you're calling, you know, ridiculous. We're trading it for self love that that should, that that's a lofty goal that that somehow raises us up is that we love ourselves. That's it. That's what, that's what defines us is Ahabat Yisrael, the love of our own people. And that's it. Nothing, nothing past there. That's how is that in any way a good thing? And and I think she's right, right? When it when it becomes reduced to, and if our Jewish identity becomes only about loving the Jewish people and belonging to the Jewish people, stum, and it stops there. I'm not sure what that means either. Like this is the criticism of Jewish Judaism as ethnicity, right? This is this is the big criticism. Is and so what what does that mean? So who cares? What is that? How does that? lift us in any way just to be about our own ethnicity, right? This is the criticism now of Kaplan, Judaism as, as an ethnicity. It's like, well, who needs that? Why Why is that a good thing? There are lots of, you know, and so, because um, I think it's a misunderstanding 
right, of Kaplan, because Kaplan would never say it's just about being an ethnic, right? It's an evolving religious civilization. For Kaplan, there absolutely were things that were supposed to be about as the Jewish people, as we figure out what it means today to be in relationship with what we would call godliness or holiness. He didn't he didn't believe in a, in a God that was a being, Kaplan, um, nor do I. So, um, so I think like, but, but in the conversation, the conversation of the Jewish people should involve in large part, sure, what music are we doing now? Have you heard the new Jewish composer? So of course that should be part of the conversation. But, and another big part of the conversation should be, and what does justice demand of us in X, Y, and Z situation? What is holiness? What does godliness demand of us right now in something that we can influence and have some, uh, part in right now, in our time, in our day, this week. So just to make sure I understand, so the idea of the Ahavat Israel that she disagrees with is you are loyal to the Jewish people because you are a Jew, and that's where it stops, that there's nothing more to being Jewish than being part of this tribe. And she doesn't like Ahavat Israel. She doesn't like love. Right meaning that you would actually feel something for someone you don't know because they're a member of your group right. to what you were saying. Right. Mr. Kanoff. Okay. But, but going back to your point about outrage that she, she you know, you know, why would you feel outrage that someone's hung because they're from your people and you don't even know them more than outrage for someone else. I mean, and now I'm extrapolating obviously, but I think that's what's, bugging her is if you should, you should love them. And I think, I think in these cases, I think empathy and love are very tied up. I think they're, Ahavat Yisrael doesn't mean real love. It means empathy. That's what the rabbis mean by Ahavat Yisrael. They don't mean, I don't even think they mean you're going to love somebody. You don't know somebody. How do you love somebody you don't know? You feel deep empathy. Your heart is wounded when they are wounded is what Ahavat Yisrael is. Because they're a Jew. Okay. Part of what bothers me about you know, things in the news about Jewish people doing things that I personally don't think are right is that I expect better. <laughs> I expect better. Of Jews. Of Jews. And so what does that say? Extrapolate down to the bottom of that. So what is that saying? Why do you expect better of Jews than of non-Jews? Because I think of Judaism as teaching morality or valuing. So your expectation is that if they're Jewish, they would have been exposed to a moral and ethical framework that demands certain kinds of behavior and I'll use the word forbids others. Correct. And so because of that, they're held to a different standard by you. The, the, Problem for me is that I no longer believe most Jews have been exposed to that. Um, very few are being exposed to that or formally for sure, maybe informally, you know, it's communicated as we're Jews and we don't do X, Y, and Z. But uh, that's one of my concerns with a thinning of Jewish identity. That is one of my serious concerns is it. So where do our kids get right a sense beyond just, okay, you don't, you don't pull hair. You don't take what doesn't belong to you. And we get that. We all get that in kindergarten. We get that living together in society. I understand we have some basics in second grade. Ms. Fine taught our children. Don't pull the ponytail of the person in front of you. I wonder what it means if our, if our kids don't get any other grounding in in a real sense of sources that are about a Jewish connection to that. And for me, I think that's, that is the part of using sacral language that is so compelling, right? So people will say to me, well, why do you have to use God language? Why can't you just say what's right and what's wrong? Why do you have to use this sacred, holy, godly stuff? If you don't believe God is a being, why do you even have to use that word? Because I think there is for me a strength to sacralizing those values that makes it not optional in a different way. I don't know why, I don't know how, but I know that it's true. And that's what I think is missing now so often. 
yeah, I know I should do this, but there's, there's a, there's a gravitas that is missing that for a lot of Jews came from an understanding that this was part of our religious obligation, whether you, whatever you believed about God. And I'm not sure what it means to, to divorce those completely of each other. And I'm, I'm concerned about it from, from my own daughter, you know, thank you for being here. We all will see you. That's a good segue into next time. And uh, we will, we'll do this again.